Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. We have seen this morning what God is like. He's made himself manifest to us today. I trust that he's going to, when we dig into his word, we're going to find exactly the same God, exactly the same faithful one in, in Scripture that we've seen moving in and amongst us this morning already. Um, grab your Bibles, your Bible app, however you want to do that. Um, in our reading plan, we're in a, a section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. I'm willing to make a confession. Maybe somebody else is willing to make a confession. I get lost in the Minor Prophets. I do. As much Bible as I've read, I end up flipping pages or even checking the table of contents you know, to find the right spot. I can't keep those guys straight. So however it is, you get to the book of Micah. Get to the book of Micah. Um, okay, type A'ers are going to say, hold on, John, we don't have the whole book of Micah in our uh, Through the Bible reading program. You're right. I actually had to check with the rest of the elders to see if it would be okay for me to reach out into Micah chapter 6 and bring a particular uh, verse, a particular message I think God's got for us on, on this date today. So uh, as you're going to Micah, one quick word about our Bible reading program. If you're behind, don't, leave, don't lose any sleep over that. Don't let it get to you. There are just any number of reasons for being behind in that Bible reading program. But as a pastor and shepherd in this church, the one thing I do want to say to you is keep going. Keep going. There's going to be a point where you get done, where you've read the whole thing. And, and, and after that point, if you ever get thinking like, oh gosh, the solution to my current crisis is in a spot I skipped, right? I didn't know it was there. You can say, no, can't be that. Just keep going in Scripture. Uh, you can see that I kind of I tried to help myself out a little bit here by leaving a bookmark <laughs> in Micah. And uh, I think there's no such thing as too much prayer. So as we unfold this, I'm going to quote a verse of Scripture to you, and we're going to pray once more. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, I love this, The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Here we go into the perfectly shepherded, perfectly kept message from God our Creator right here. Lord, as we open up Your Word and unfold it, Lord, we are so ready to take Your Word into our hearts and into our minds. Lord, we are so eager for everyone here, every saved person who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, to have our spirits bear witness with Your Spirit reminding us once again that we are daughters and sons of God. So eager for that, Lord. We trust you to keep your promises. We offer up our, ourselves, Lord, in, in submission to the perfection of your word. Father, speak, for your servants are listening and expecting, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the, the first thing you're going to notice about Micah when you start reading about him is he's a little bit different than most of the other prophets we've read about so far. Uh, he's a little more like Amos, the, the farmer prophet. He's kind of a, he's kind of, I don't know, maybe even a blue-collar guy. I've only known one man in, personally uh, my, uh, who's named Micah. 
Uh, and I kind of get the idea that Micah the prophet was much like the Micah I've known. Uh, very approachable, approachable, very plain spoken. Um, no guessing what, what's on his mind, because if you talk with him more than about 10 seconds, you're, you're going to find out, and that's actually a very, very good thing. Micah's a little bit different because we don't have like a genealogy on, on Micah. He doesn't tell us, or, hey, I'm Micah, son of whoever, who is son of whoever. What we do have is where he's from. He's Micah of Morsheth. Anybody ever been there? Nobody's been there, right? It's kind of, it's kind of like I have some dear friends here from Middletown. I'm almost, almost reluctant to say this. Morsheth is like Middletown. It's not really Dayton. It's not really Cincinnati. It's just like in the middle, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the, the essential backbone and breadbasket of the country. Morsheth is in the Shephelah region, but nobody goes there on vacation. So Micah is not your glitzy uh, rhinestone prophet. In fact, if you wanted to say that Micah is pretty much everybody's prophet, you, you couldn't be very far off. As he starts to deliver this word of the Lord that was delivered to him, he starts out just by simply saying, Hear, you peoples, all of you. He's not speaking it in a palace. He's just saying, hey, this is a word from the Lord. Everybody listen up, will you? My favorite thing about Micah, and, and what I think will be most helpful for us today, is that there's no great big deal made about his calling as a prophet. Now, we know that he was because, well, here he is amongst all these other prophets uh, in, in the Bible. But it wasn't like some a vision in the temple like with Isaiah. It wasn't some magnificent dream. It wasn't uh, like the Lord showing up like he did with Jeremiah and say, hey, I knew you before you were born. Get out here and get to work. There's not a big deal made about Micah's calling as a prophet. So what do you... Where is that? Well, it's actually in chapter 3, verse 8. And this is what Micah says about himself. He says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. Well, not that the other prophets weren't, but it sure looks like this is what God wanted Micah to get across to all the peoples. That the very basis of his calling was that he was filled with power. And that power was the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, who else is filled with power? Who else is filled with the Spirit of the Lord? Come on. Every Christian who has ever lived, every Christian who will ever live, every particular individual whom God has visited with saving faith, every person whose heart of stone has been swapped out for a heart of flesh with the law of the Lord written right on it, every person who has in, been indwelled by the Holy Spirit is filled with the power of the Spirit of the Lord. Are you saved? Are you redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ? That's you. And that's me. Filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. And isn't it so cool that God took a regular old guy from flyover country to make it plain to us even now that the word of the Lord is for every believer. Every believer. If I were writing a commentary on this book of Micah, and I guess in a very small way that's what today's sermon is, I would give it a simple three-word subtitle. Simplify your 
faith. I'm pretty sure we would all agree there is a, there is a great need to embrace simplicity in our age. It has become complicated, hasn't it? You know, a function of the information age, yeah, sure. Um, some other plans going on, I don't know who's. I know the enemy of our souls is up to this complexity thing, wants to make it uh, more complicated than we think we can deal with. And wow, okay, mission accomplished. I can't deal with it all. Cultural, social issues, my goodness. So many shoots and branches, you just can't possibly keep track of everything. And even within the Christian faith, <laughs> complexity is kicking our tails. It's, it's getting the best of us. There's so many things to disagree about that we're having trouble remembering the things we don't have to disagree about. And the things we don't have to disagree about are a whole lot more important than the things, many of the things we do disagree about. So here's, here's this thing that I want us to consider. It's not hard at all to find or get a glimpse of divisiveness. All right? But maybe here's a theory that will help us to, to simplify. The theory, the idea that, that the division doesn't start out there in cyberspace or the blogosphere or the bookstore or a, a pulpit in some other church or uh, even among the various believers in this common fellowship. It's the idea that the division starts right here. It, it's, it starts on the inside. And I'm not saying it's for impure purposes. What I'm saying is there's just too much to keep track of. And, and we want to do all kinds of good things, but we can't do all kinds of good things. And sometimes we do good things when we find out somebody gets all honked off someplace else. I go, oh, wow. So we've reached a point at which frustration begins to well up. And then we have to start within ourselves trying to divide out this and that. And, and, and we get to where we, we regret having to not not focus on some things that we would have thought were important and that, that division begins. And that frustration bubbles up a little bit more. And yeah, at some point it's going to get to the outside. And that's when we have the division that you go, okay, wow, we got a division, but it started, it started in here on the inside. Now if you think, if you think I've come here today to, to rail on us for being crummy Christians, not the point at all. That's not not why I'm here. Actually, Hebrews chapter 10 says the reason we gather together is so we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. And to do that through encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching, the day of the Lord. <laughs> so since I'm the only one left standing here on the platform, I figure my job is to be the chief encourager. So that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say to you all, there is a path out of the complexity and into simplicity. There is a path to a place where we have room to breathe and we can rest in the love of our Father. And that's where the love and good deeds happen. That's where we actually do find the one or two holy and helpful things the Lord has ordained for us to do. And as we get into Micah, long about chapter 6, he's going to hand us a map and a flashlight. So we're going to dig into that. I want to see uh, Micah as a, as a whole here as we're heading, heading that direction. See, 
as you open this thing up, this book, you find out like the first five chapters are standard issue Old Testament prophet. He is proclaiming oracles. If you've never had an oracle spoken over you, ha, I hope you, <laughs> I hope you understand like, oh, okay, great. Like many of the prophets, he's, he's proclaiming these things that are going to happen. Okay, that's not, not a great big headline because he's saying basically everybody's going to get what they deserve. Okay, good. What's he do next? Well, in chapter 6, in the opening verse, he does something that truly is unusual in the Old Testament prophets. Flip over there. He sets up, he sets up like a courtroom scene. Pick it up at verse 1. The first two verses. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Hear ye, hear ye. All rise. Setting up this courtroom scene. He's calling creation to be witnesses. And we do love a courtroom drama, don't we? Until we find out that the indictment is against us. Do not fear. Because God is not only just, He is the one who justifies. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Want an allegory for that one? Imagine walking into a courtroom, the judge is behind the bench, and as you walk in, you know you're guilty. I mean, you know you're guilty. And you look at the judge, and you know that he knows you're guilty. So nobody's questioning the guilt. How silly would it be for the judge to say not guilty? That would be a lie. But what if the judge says, I choose to treat you as if you had never committed the thing that made you guilty? That's Romans 5.1. That's God's love for those he chooses. That's justification by faith. So here we are. We find ourselves in the middle of this courtroom scene. The indictment is about to be read against us. But don't fear, because the Lord is not only just, but the one who justifies. Pick it up next in verse 3. God speaking, he says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So what has the Lord done? He has been the Redeemer. He's been the Deliverer. Remember Balaam, the guy with the talking donkey from back in Numbers? Balak, king of Moab, wanted to pay him to curse God's people. And every time Balaam opened his mouth, blessing came out. So what has God done? He's been faithful and true. He's brought the people to a place like, okay, what they find is there is no plausible defense in the face of this indictment we find that there is no good reason for us as the people of God to have broken covenant with him and abandoned him. So why would God do that? Why would he bring us to this point? 
was, is it just to prove that he's in the right? Well, he's in the right, sure enough. But there's another purpose, a parallel purpose. And you won't see it until you see the response of the people to the indictment that has just been read. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. The people respond. And see if you can pick up on the exasperation in their response. And the people say, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the, for the sin of my soul? Are you picking up the frustration in there? They have no answer to the indictment. It's a gotcha. So let me bring it really close to home, if I may. If you could pray the most gut-honest prayer that has ever leaped into your mind, What would it sound like? What words would you use? Where would the tone and inflection land? How much exasperation would there be in your voice? The most gut-honest, no-holds-barred that has ever leaped into your mind. You know, sometimes maybe we don't even want to think about it. If you were to cut loose with a prayer like that, I'd venture to say that it would sound something like this. God, what do you want from me? You've plunked me down on this crazy mixed up world. I got seven billion voices in my ear. Every person on the planet seems to want a piece of me. I try to do good and it does harm over here. I, God, what is it exactly that you want from me? And maybe the world wouldn't think so, but I, see that, I say that's a great place to be. That's, that's dependence. That's getting to a place where you're waiting for the Lord to answer because you got nothing you can make up on your own. Prayers like, prayers like this, it is the regenerated soul calling out and declaring, if God does not speak, and speak clearly and soon, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm so glad we get to meet here in person. Because standing right here right now, I'm looking out, I'm saying, we've been together in some scenarios like that. You and me and the other elders, and uh, we have a history. We've called on the Lord, and He has answered. True to His Word, just like He does here through the prophet Micah, God does speak. And he does speak clearly. And it's the very next thing you see as you travel on into this word from Micah the prophet. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This verse has the power to take a million things and bring it to three. In faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit, this verse brings it to three. And I hope, and I hope there are at least a few of you thinking right now, oh, wow, does that mean I can stop fussing over the things I can't change anyway? Yep. 
Does that mean I can stop trying to reconcile 7.4 billion personalities all at the same time? Uh Uh-huh. Does it mean I can stop trying to prove myself right all the time? Absolutely. That last one wasn't going so well anyway. Not for me anyway. I have loved this verse for decades. I usually get all caught up in the complexity and after I've been wallowing and, and, and trying to tread water in the middle of all that for a while, I'll come back to this, this verse. Like, oh wait, what does God the Father require of His daughters and sons? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Alright. So I have a, a, a long love affair with this verse anyway. And then last week, I had this weird little encounter. Uh, not so much with the, well, with the verse and with, with the Lord. I, I'm, I'm getting my notes together for this sermon today, and, and it's, I, oh, wow, Lord, you're a genius. I see three things in this verse. I'll three-point that sermon, because three-point sermons are the way to go. People always remember them. The people will be so blessed, Lord, and they're like, and it's like the Lord, they went, shh, John. What? Simplify some more. What do you mean? One of these things gets you all three. Which one do you think it might be? Yes. Lord's been talking to you too, Grover. Walk humbly with your God. The only thing I have to accomplish this morning is to encourage you in that one thing. To walk humbly with your God. That's it. And I better get at it pretty soon because in about five seconds our brains are going to try to complicate that very simple issue. So I'll give you the, the simplest illustration I know of. All right. I am old. Next Sunday I'll be 61. Whew. I have no idea how that happened. But along the way, um, Kay and I have acquired grandchildren. Glory, Hallelujah. Among those grandchildren, I have two grandsons. One's nine years old. The other one's 19. Okay, they're not brothers, they're cousins. Okay, and yeah, they are in vastly different stages of life because of the vast difference in their ages. I mean, you're only nine and 19, 10 years is quite the spread. A lifetime for the younger one and then some. The one thing, the one trait, one of the traits they have in common is those boys... Those boys ask a lot of really good questions. It's startling to me as a grandpa, but they ask without pretense or preconceived notion. When they get an answer and they go to live it out and they still don't understand it exactly, they will be back for a follow-up question. Best thing of all about the questions these boys ask is they ask these questions without having decided already what the answer should be. They're so good at it, I'm jealous. Because I think about six months after I was saved 38 years ago, I started to forget how to ask questions without deciding already what the answers were supposed to be. 
want it back. And so I'm practicing. That little encounter last week was, was part of that. Like, shh, shh. Okay. Okay. That's what it means to walk humbly. Now, to walk humbly like that, not just with a fallible grandfather, who's short on answers anyway, and any number of those may be wrong, imagine what it's like to walk humbly with God, to walk humbly with your Father. Imagine that. And as you imagine it, and you imagine the two of you walking together, you might also remember that among the two of you, one of, them is called, one of you is called the Ancient of Days. And one of you was just born in the previous century. Maybe not even that. Yeah? As you imagine this walk, remember that among the two of you, one of you created all things out of nothing. If I learn no more Latin than the phrase ex nihilo, I'm good with that. Out of nothing, let there be. So one of you created all things out of nothing. And one of you needed to learn how to tie a pair of shoelaces. Or maybe you haven't. As you imagine this walk, you might also remember that among the two of you, one of you will throw the devil into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. And one of you prays pretty often when you can't think of anything else to pray to be delivered from the evil one. But the best thing to imagine of all is that both of you are thoroughly enjoying the walk. Okay, stop imagining and walk right into it. When you see the word walk in the Bible, most often it's being used metaphorically. And it's referring to a steady, ongoing, unhurried, unstoppable progress. Walk. It's not a leap. It's not a metamorphosis. It's not an epiphany. It's taking a step. And then another one. One after that. Simplicity itself. Draw near to God, James says. And he will draw near to you. That's in the chapter just before the one read, Andrew read from as we were praying healing for Noriah. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Can you think of anything any simpler than that? Complexity causes frustration, which causes division on the inside that spills over to the outside. It's nothing new among the people of God. And, and I think we can see it in the people's response uh, to Micah's prophecy. And I think we can identify it in, in, this, in this, this morning right here um, to, to check on continuity. Has this thing uh, had a history from way back then to some place in the middle to where we are right now. Yeah. So we're going to bounce over into the New Testament. And we're going to see how this, 
this frustration on the inside has, has brought about um, effects on the outside in the recorded history of the Corinthian church. So there are a couple places I want you to, to, to go to in 1 Corinthians. First place will be chapter 4 in that letter, way back in the New Testament after Romans. So here's what happened. About 1950-some years ago, this hotshot apostle named Paul, heard of him? He rolls into Corinth and he, and he plants a Christian church there. Well, that's great because there are people coming to faith. Um, they they want to have fellowship. They want to be taught in this, in this new thing called the church. Remember, people were, were dispersed out of Jerusalem out of the, uh, after the stoning of Stephen, Acts chapter 8, right? Boom, there go Christians all over the known world. And they find themselves in these lonely outposts. And one of those lonely outposts, even though it was a bustling trade city, was Corinth. Paul plants a church there. And that looks great, except for just as they're building up a pretty good head of steam, Paul he gets rambling fever, off he goes to plant another church. So without, without enough proper instruction, these baby Christians in, in Corinth, well, they run off the rails, to be quite honest with you. So Paul has these co-laborers in the gospel, as he calls them, and they're, they're traveling all over the place. And, and they're traveling to, through Corinth and to where Paul is in Ephesus, and, and they're giving him reports on the Corinthian church, and they're saying, Paul, these folks in Corinth have run off the rails. So Paul writes them a letter, not this one. Paul writes them a letter. Okay, I'm not making this up, right? The references to these other letters are in Scripture, so we know they exist. Uh, existed. We know that they were written, sent, received, and acted upon. All right. So Paul sends them a letter basically saying, I hear y'all have run off the rails. What are you doing? Well, we're kind of frustrated at that because, yeah, a lot of this is on them, sure. But maybe, just maybe, Paul left some work undone back in Corinth when he took off for the next place. So they're kind of, they're kind of frustrated, but, but thankfully... Amongst them, there is still enough humility to write a letter to Paul. You can find a reference to that, or a couple, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the opening verse. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, okay, he got a letter from them. So they write a letter to him saying, all right, teach us, will you? So Paul gets this letter, takes a deep breath. finds himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. Now, I, don't, I, I can't know how much each one of you knows about the letter of, of 1 Corinthians, but there's some, there's some hot-button topics in there. Some hot-button topics. And they get all the, the airtime. One of the most overlooked aspects of this letter of 1 Corinthians is that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remember, put his finger right on the problem in Corinth. And he does it early on in the letter. Chapter 4, verse 15, he writes, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. As a pastor, I can hear 
in Paul's writing. And I kind of get a witness and hear like, oh, I left work undone. Uh, I thought I was done or I got distracted. Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And as a sidebar here today, fellas, we had a heads up in the first century A.D. I think maybe in the 21st century A.D. we were finally beginning to understand the essential need of fatherhood. I could do this for days on end. I won't, because I know you want to go to Bob Evans. Okay? Time after time after time after time, there is work the Lord plans to get done among His people. And if Dad's not cooperating, it ain't happening. I don't do that to cast aspersions on you. I do that so you will know if you hadn't thought of it before. Look into this thing, this essential need for fatherhood. And ask the Lord, like, what's, what's my part? You don't have to father everybody. You don't have to be a dad to all. A dad to the ones the Lord's called you to be a dad to. In this scenario we're looking into in 1 Corinthians, Paul was a spiritual father to these baby Christians in Corinth. He was uh, the one who, who uh, brought the assembly together. There were a lot of people uh, brought to the faith uh, in his ministry, through his ministry there in Corinth, right? There are no other Christians. There's not another church down the road in Corinth. This, this is it. This is the assembly of believers, and Paul's been trying to pastor this church through the mail, and he realizes, well, that's not happening very well. So he does send him this letter, and as a patient father, on behalf of God, he begins to teach them. One thing he wants to teach them about, it's on this subject of, of division and lack of unity in the church. And that's what he does in, in chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there, please. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, and he he puts his finger on this, this idea of the lack of unity in the church. And he writes them in the 18th verse of, of, the, of the 11th chapter, I hear there are divisions among you. Well, he's, he's not surprised at that. Can I show you something I think is fascinating? Immediately after he calls attention to the lack of unity and the divisions within the church, what's the very next thing he talks about? Communion. The Lord's Supper. Was that an accident? Was that just, oh, I meant to tell you. Not at all. You know, of course, when, these, when this letter first went out, it didn't have chapter and verse divisions. It was one idea after another. There were transitory thoughts, yes, but not chapter and, number, chapter and verse numbers. He says, I hear there are divisions among you. And he treats that topic for a couple of verses, and then he goes straight into the next thing. It's the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians were doing it, <laughs> they were doing it bad wrong. Bad wrong. And so, yes, he scolds them for doing it bad wrong. But look, look, look. He doesn't tell them, you better stop doing communion because you're so bad at it. He teaches them how to do it right. 
And to keep the lesson just as simple as he possibly can, he goes with the instructions Jesus himself had given. Have you ever seen that progression in that chapter before? I hear there are divisions among you. Does it seem to you now that communion, the Lord's Supper, is meant to be a unifying, clarifying, simplifying activity among the children of God? Among those who have been redeemed by the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. We've got uh, those little cups. I didn't pick up another one on the way in. I thought it was weird that I'd be taking communion twice on the same Sunday. I don't know. I'm just quirky that way. A fellow told me once I was on borderline OCD. I told him, borderline, I'll show you borderline. I'll be the best day I go on OCD you ever saw. For whatever reason of quirkiness, I didn't get another one of those cups. And so, on the Lord's behalf, will lead us in, in through this. Before there even was a church, Jesus gathered his disciples together in a, in a place we know as the upper room at an event we call the Last Supper. And he instituted the First Supper the first Lord's Supper to be carried on. Get this, before the disciples even knew why they would need to remember the Lord, <laughs> he had said to them, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. As a unifying, clarifying, simplifying activity among this fellowship of believers. If you're not a believer yet, just hold that thing. Uh, nobody's taking a poll of who does this and who doesn't. It wouldn't make any sense to a believer. In fact, there's no reason why an unbeliever wouldn't say that's silly. That can't mean a thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man does not re receive the things of the Spirit of God. He does not understand them because they're spiritually discerned. There's no reason for a non-Christian to think like a Christian. Two verses later, it says, we who have been saved have the mind of Christ. All of us here with the mind of Christ who owe our redeemed lives and our eternity to our Savior, we will remember His broken body and His poured out blood. Now just lead us into communion by way of praying. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, we remember you said you are laying down your life willingly. Nobody's taking it from you. Jesus, you said that you have the power to lay your life down. <laughs> Glory, hallelujah. You have the power. You've demonstrated the power to raise it up again. Oh Lord God, you told us in Romans chapter 8 that if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, it'll quicken our mortal bodies. Lord, we're being quickened. And that couldn't have happened if you hadn't laid down your life willingly. So, oh Lord, we take this little wafer 
Heal it out of here. And we remember your body broken. You were wounded for our transgressions. You were bruised for our iniquities. On you was laid the burden of sin. And you bore it. And by your stripes, I hear it. I hear it from my brothers and sisters. We are healed. Thank you, Jesus, for your body broken. We receive gratefully. Oh. Lord God, you have said that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Lord, we've seen over and over and over and over again the, the, the sacrifices offered by the priests. And at the next time, they're, they're back again to offer more sacrifices. Jesus, we know that you and only you were the perfect offering. Jesus, we know that your whole life was spent. Your blood was spilled out. Even the Roman soldier said, surely this was the Son of God. Jesus, we know what that means. You are begotten, not created. Messiah, anointed one. Your blood was the only proper atonement. Lord, we receive this small cup as a reminder of your blood poured out and we receive it gratefully. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Blessed are you. Blessed is your name. King now, king forever. Blessed are you, O Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I love how Paul begins to close out his letter of 1 Corinthians. He's been all over these big, big topics. He's he's been diligently teaching the Corinthian Christians and teaching us. And he starts to wind this thing down. You know, chapter 16 is mostly, you know, these letters, the greeting is at the end. That's different than the way we usually do it. He heads into chapter 15. And he says, now I would remind you, brothers. You know what it means to be reminded. It means you've heard this before. He's not bringing it as a, as a new piece of information. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. After all this, where does he come back to? The gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised 
on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The broken body and poured out blood of Jesus, His death and His resurrection, is the one and only foundation necessary for your faith. Church, it's time to simplify our faith. We're getting bandied around by the complexity. To recognize that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a finished work. It has bought our redemption. It will never lose its power to hold. I'm going to pray. We're going to head into more worship. Prayer teams will come. Elders will be around. There's no need to, to hurry off any place. And, you know, as Andrew said before, maybe the Lord's been working healing while you've been right there. We are gathered in Jesus' name. And we know that He is here amongst us. So no need to run off. Let's pray. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, author of salvation, founder and perfecter of our faith, infinite source of grace and mercy. Great are you, Lord. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Lord, still, Father, God, we still receive your love. Abba, Father. Let us take that pure, pure, sparkling, magnificent love and wave and on the crest of that Lord, ride out into the rest of this big old world you've created, secure as sons and daughters of God Most High, unquestioning, unflinching, able to laugh at ourselves a little bit when the world says we're silly, always and forever, Lord, looking into your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, for opening the door of the throne room, making it possible for us to boldly approach the throne of grace and to find help in time of need, every time of need. Father, we're glad you know each and every need. The ones that have been spoken out loud in this room, the ones that haven't yet been spoken out loud, the ones that will just be spoken in prayer between you and a daughter or son. We know that you know them all. You haven't forgotten. You're not too busy. You're not too far off. Lord, we receive your love. Be glorified in our receiving of your love. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If you need prayer for anything, you can email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com or you can go on our website at www.cobblestonechurch.com and submit it there. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week and God bless.